0: Being creative, being artistic—it was—it was not on my radar at all as even a possibility. It'd be like being in a trail park and saying, "I want to be like ambassador for the UN." Like it's just, there's no path there. Most of us have two lives:
1: the life we live and the unlived life within us. We all have our own road to walk. Nothing's perfect, and there's going to be a price for everything. There are no rules. Welcome to The Resistance, featuring meaningful conversations. I think I'm grieving the death of part of me. It's not about being the star and being seen. It's about... That explore that very space between who we are and who we say we want to be. I'm your host, Matt Connor. Welcome to The Resistance. My name is Matt Connor. And I have company here in the Oh my booth.
2: goodness, man. It's been so long. I feel like the so Rona has kept us apart for so long.
1: I was trying to hide you from our <laughs> listeners for a long time. yeah. But alas, I cannot anymore. Jay Kirkpatrick is here, audio engineer, one of my closest friends. How are you today, Jay? I'm doing really good, man.
2: I'm excited because this is the first time we've done this together for a while. Not because I haven't wanted to, but because, man, life is just... Uh, is just like playing hopscotch to get anything done with everything so yeah, I'm glad we are able to come together and kind of start doing this again together even though you are very brilliant on your
1: oh, is- I'm happy your to isolated have to
2: intros on like your your solos
1: <laughs> yeah no i'm 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 here i'm I'm ready for the band gig <laughs> today i I love this episode i I actually tracked down Tony toast for a long time. I just respect him so much. Um, If you've ever seen shows like Longmire or Damnation or The Terror, which was on AMC, uh, then you've seen Tony's work. He's just a a tremendous, dramatic TV screenwriter. Um, He's actually a poet, comes from the academic world. He wrote a book about Johnny Cash. I mean, he's kind of just an incredible writer all around But I was chasing Tony for a while just because I I knew he'd have a lot of great things to say. What I didn't realize was just how many great thoughts and, and, and even questions he'd throw back at me in our conversation. But Jay, just curious kind of what you took away from this conversation, what people can look forward to here.
2: Oh, man, I took so much. Interestingly enough. Uh, you know, I, I, I was fascinated by you, actually, for part of the interview, because the first part of the interview, he's he's trying to relate to the question. And I think I realized this is why Matt is the interviewer and not me, because <laughs> of the way that you just kind of you you handled it. And everyone will see what, what, uh, what I mean by that when they listen to it. But I mean, for the most part, uh, man, it, I felt like it was like a toolkit he was giving me personally, um, listening to him, the things that popped to mind of like, He seems, Tony Toast, like, seems like this blue-collar creative. I don't know how else to kind of describe it, like a micro kind of mentality of, like, you know, late in life, and he didn't grow up with a creative family, grew up in a trailer park, you know, trailer park to trailer park. Creativity, imagination, all these things weren't something that his family, like, really had. Like, they weren't a family of artists, necessarily, or creatives. And when he was 18, he... He, he knew this, something switched, it flipped on in him. And, um, and he actually didn't start writing screenplays until he was 35. So there was like this huge swath of time where he just realized he's a creative. So all he did was he created and then he went to a regular job, you know, serving coffee, you know, working retail, working all these jobs, dirty jobs, I guess, <laughs> uh, if you, if you want to stick with the micro. Um, but this idea of like listening to him talk, he, As you talked about obstacles and things and distances of of places he wanted to be and where he wasn't, he kind of like couldn't relate to it because in his mind, he's like, oh, no, he's like, I'm a blue collar creative. Like I put my pants on. If I if I don't know what to do, I do something badly. And then I, I, I improve it. I perfect it. You know, he talked about having a scene if he didn't know what to write for a scene with writer's block. He, was, he basically said, you know, I, I, I just write a bad version of the scene and I, I I improve upon it. And there's never any time where I just don't think, oh, if I just I just got to create, even if it's not the best version, it's just I'm going to put in my pants. If I don't know what I'm doing, uh, I'm just going to figure it out as I go. There's really in his mind, I felt like if he saw a wall. He looked and he saw a way under it, a way around it, a way through it, a way over it, you know, all these things. And I think. For me, yeah. being an older man, I'm 42, almost in the uh, in the geriatric phase of life at this point. Um, you know, there's all these things I'm afraid of, all these things that uh, I want to. If I put something out that's, or I want to put something out that's not actually very good, I just don't put it out until I have the words that I think are better, and and so it keeps me from creating of pursuing these things that I really love and want to do. And I feel like his interview is a toolkit of here's what you do if. You know, you just got to keep going. There's like, you just put on your pants, you put on your uniform, you're creative and you just do it and you just keep yeah. doing it until it gets good because that's the way life is. You do it till it gets good and you're good. <laughs> it was awful. It was great. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is awesome.
1: Well, good, good. I, you know, you know, it comes to mind one time I'm sitting on a plane and I'm I'm sitting next to a woman who says her, her little kid is in her lap. She has a seat for the kid because the plane mandates you got to have a seat but, but um, she says, I just, I hold him in my lap. He was like two at the time. And so like, I'm, I'm sitting there on the plane. Everyone thinks it's my wife and my kid. It's not. I'm talking to her, asking about the kid. And she says, I can't let him sit down. And I can't let him like walk around the plane. Like like the moment his feet hit the ground, he knows that's an option. Mm. And so I hold him above the floor so he knows that walking around or doing his own thing is never an option on the plane. Then, therefore, he doesn't complain about it. And Tony's interview reminded me of that. It was like for him, you know, if if you don't grow up with parents telling you, oh, yeah, you can do that. You can do anything you want. If you don't know that you can do something, then... Then when that door is open to you, you know, cause some people, mm. I mean, like I, I'm this way for me to create something. It's like, Oh, I need my cup of coffee. I need my desk <laughs> clear. I need all the things in the right place. And then when I get them all there, I'm like, Oh, now my coffee's cold again. Let me go warm it up. I mean, like I need to do a hundred things before I say I can create and, and talking to Tony, it's like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know that there's another opportunity to say you want to create, but not do it. I didn't grow up that way. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know there was like all these things that creative people like to do to not create or excuses to make. He just has that workmanlike mentality to do it. And so it reminds me of that woman when I was talking to him, just thinking, man, that's really a blessing in a way to not know any other way. Hmm. You just have to do the work. If you feel it, you're called to it, you do it. And that's that. So, yeah, I I love that you related to that. I related it to it, too. I think Tony's such a wonderful teacher for us, and that's why I think everyone's going to love this conversation. So, uh, yeah, without any further ado, we could talk about it even more, but we'll just let Tony speak for himself. Here is our interview with screenwriter Tony Toast. Tony, I... I, I guess I could say you're a screenwriter a poet you've actually like worked in academia before now you're like working in TV and film how do you normally introduce yourself
0: oh uh, I guess I usually just say writer but I guess yeah TV writer screenwriter I've I've kind of uh, lost the uh, the poetry academia mojo so I, I'm kind of of the school that you're only what you practice, what you actually do. So I'm no longer a practicing poet or academic, but I am, yeah, working in TV and screenwriting right now.
1: I like that as a differentiator. That also sounds like odd in Hollywood, where everyone identifies themselves, or, or where many people identify, like in entertainment. You know, I identify mm-hmm. as a writer, but I'm a waiter, or I'm a, like, like it's one of those. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, no, and well, I mean, as long as you keep if you're actually writing then, uh, then, uh, then, you know, I think it's all, it's all good. That's, that's all good. Like, it's like, I, if the conversation ever gets there, I kind of refer myself as a former intellectual. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> practice, as, you know, like there's, there's like five years of my life where I probably was kind of, you know, I was reading philosophy and critical theory and trying to make headway through that. But then I, I, I don't really do that anymore. So I don't, I don't get to claim any kind of, uh, Intellectual status or uh, poet status, but uh, yeah. So I think as as long as you do the shit, you're uh, um, you're you, you can claim on it whether or not you know you're actually anybody sees you do it or not.
1: I like it. Well, yeah. tony I, I want to begin our episode where we begin every episode, and that is our source material comes from *The War of Art* by Stephen Pressfield. And let me just read a quick quote here, and I'd love to get your response. Pressfield writes this he says most of us live two lives the life we live and the unlived life within us and between the two stands the resistance at this point in your career as a writer what does resistance look like for you and what's your relationship to that
0: yeah I mean that's as as I'm I think I gestured earlier like I, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it because it's the uh, the life and the inner life being separate is so kind of uh, almost contrary to how I think that I, I, I'm. I'm just really curious to, to talk about it because to, to me, like like when I was, I was talking to my wife about it, I was like, "There's this quote, and I think I know what it means, but to me, it's like saying there's like an undriven car lurking within the car that I drive." And like, there's a resistance to it. And I am just like, I don't know. I kind of get what that means, but I don't know how that helps me drive the car. Like I just, Mm. you know, like to, you know, like I, I, and I think, I mean, it's not that I think I'm, I'm I'm too good for this kind of uh, introspection. I just don't think I'm, I I just don't think my brain works that way or that I'm so uh, maybe anxious about what might be lurking inside that I just like (laughs) to pretend it's not, it's not there. And so I just, you know, I almost categorically say, like, that doesn't track for me. So, like, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what it is. Like, Like to me, it's – and this is going to go weird spots, so I, I apologize ahead of time. But, you know, yeah, like – I, okay, so <laughs> back when I was an intellectual and read books um, and, you know, like I was always drawn towards process uh, philosophy from, from – from the ancients and Greeks with Heraclitus all the way up to people like Alfred North Whitehead. And, 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 and I, I would access it from these different po- uh, points of entry from poetry and stuff from people like Charles Olson. And, and to me, it's like, you know, the, the world is not full of eternal forms. It's not full of necessarily even objects, but it's full of actions. And, and so for me, like my, my self only exists and how it's like my operational perspective through which acts are performed, and so in that way, any kind of s- sense of inner self that doesn't lead to action or to actual creativity or some kind of process, it's I may as well be talking about a, a fairy tale. And yeah. so, so it's interesting. I don't think I have, and again, I don't think I. Let me rephrase: I don't think I am aware. Or I don't think I process uh, a resistance or an inner self separate from myself. I mean I have I have unaccomplished ambitions and I have things that I, I have yet to do that I want to do, or there's things that I've done that I wish I would have done better. Absolutely. I mean I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not the picture of self-realization or anything. But <laughs> yeah, but there there is there there isn't I, I don't have this this unlived inner inner self that i'm aware of that i i don't i don't i i mean i could i could i could come in and, and talk about it but i think i would be mostly you know kind of making making things up to be a, agreeable i don't know i mean that's i i want to turn back to you do, do you do you have this this kind of this because obviously that that quote must resonate for you or 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 it's something that. You know, you found to be a good prompt for conversation. Like, what, what what draws you to this particular quote, if if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, no, no, I think it's complete bunk too. And I, no, I'm just kidding. I, that would be really interesting. <laughs> If I just chose a, a random, quote,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah the, the 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 author paid you fifty bucks to use it, and you're like, okay, oh, yeah, sure, oh.
1: right, right. I've got nothing to do. No, what what I love too is that initially your quote starts out with, um, "Oh, great! My my guest on the podcast today does not believe in the premise of the podcast. This this will be really wonderful. Like this sounds like a wonderful, <laughs> uh, wonderful way forward. But I but I do understand what you're saying. I guess I have several thoughts, and yeah. and. Let me, let me bounce back to what you were saying to maybe give you the answer to your own question, which is, which is what I understand you to say is different than, you know, like, like I grew up in very religious circles. And so there's a sense there where there's a difference there's a, there's like an ability to remove yourself from what you believe. Like a person can say, Hmm. I believe in whatever, in God, or I believe, oh yeah, we should be good about the climate change and not do anything about it. Like there's this Western Uh, sort of ability to to remove ourselves from what we believe. And I think maybe that in some ways what you were saying, no, that should be more holistic than that. If you don't do what you say you believe, then there's nothing you really don't believe it. And I think culturally, you know, we're raised to say, I believe this, or, you know, we can say, Oh, I love that. Like we love everything, but, but there's no like real movement of love toward, that thing we just mm-hmm. we're allowed to say things that are not true and and a la- that's allowed to be called truth as long as we say it so maybe in some way on a greater level or more academic level or whatever you want to say maybe that's what you mean but for me what you also said you said look i'm not the image of self-realization here i have i have things i haven't done that i would like to do and to me the quote from Pressfield and the whole book on the war of art is really about that. It's, it's sort of a very practical grounded. What is it that you keep putting off that you're afraid of? And how do you get over that fear? Or what is the thing that, that you keep throwing out excuses for and yet still keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for me, I identify with that. I, I have some friction that I'm learning how to overcome And I guess you see it every year at new year's day where gyms around the country sell (laughs) the most membership that they're ever going to have. And then like who follows up on that very few. So yeah, I guess I would kick that back to you to say that part that you can identify with, maybe it would just be worth restating for you, which is just what is unrealized for you. And is there a reason for not realizing that?
0: Yeah, no, no, that, that helps a lot. And then I think, I mean, not to veer too long into um, the philosophical or abstract, but yeah, like I, I think you know what you're kind of talking about. Like, there's always this um, tension between, uh, like, what what's the basis of your identity? Is it your essence, something, some some inner kind of almost eternal, untouched self, or is it existence, like like the actual acts, like you know, like like the the you know, like existential philosophers, like you know existence precedes essence like you, you only know who you are almost on reflection after a, you know a series of acts and or projects and that's and that's how you become you know your I- identity doesn't precede what you do and I think I've kind of you know I didn't have the language for that before but that that's been a kind of a, a thing you know for me I think and, and I think a lot of it's probably because of you know my, my background like I come from a pretty I didn't have the language for for thinking about these these things when i was developing i think my impulses so like you know not not to dwell too much but you know first generation college student my parents were day and night custodians at my elementary school my mother and my adoptive father my my biological father was not in the picture and you know i grew up in a series of trailer parks was working at a pickle factory after graduating high school there wasn't r- really books or culture as we would recognize it, it at home. And so like the, the idea of being an artist or being anything like that, it just, it never entered into my consciousness until I was about 18 or 19. And there was a, you know, kind of a, a convergence of, you know, me, I started taking classes at a community college, took my first creative writing class and discovered I had a facility there. You know, I was really into grunge music. I, was gr- I grew up outside of Seattle um, in a small town. And, and then, um, you know, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs came out and I felt this connection with Quentin Tarantino's work, but also his, you know, he kind of came up from nothing and this idea that, oh, you don't have to come from a, a cultured, rich family in order to be an, an artist. And and, and and then I also started being exposed to books that, um, like all the books I was assigned in junior high and high school, I thought were just freaking terrible and, and just told me that, you know, like, book, books are not for me. And then I got to, like, uh, community college and read, like, Kafka for the first time or Kurt Vonnegut or Flannery O'Connor. And I was like, oh, there's actually, like, you know, books that actually have life to them or actually, like, were interesting to me or were funny uh, in weird ways. And so being creative, being artistic, it was it was not on my radar at all as even a possibility It'd be, like, being in a trailer park and saying I want to be, like, ambassador for the UN. Like, it's just, there was no... There's no path there. Like, you know, there's just so for me, like the resistance is never once once the light came on and I realized that like art, literature, movies, music that I connected with them more than I did with my family or the people I was around. And they seemed to understand me more than my family did or the people I was growing up around, that this was actually my real family in a kind of a spiritual sense was artists, even if I didn't know them. Once that clicked for me, about 18 and 19, like, I've been, like, just nonstop. I don't, I don't know. Other than when maybe I go on vacation with my family, I don't know if there's a day that I'm not, like, creating something. It just something came alive in me. I stopped being depressed, lost, like, 70 pounds, uh, and just turned into, like, a different person because, like, I, I all of a sudden I had um, a foothold in the world. And so the question was then was not... Um, turning on something inside me because something got turned on inside me that that I couldn't turn off it became what are practical paths in order to like have you know to to pay the the bills you know because I was on my own financially from the time I was about 18 and then also you know like how to gain access to capital financing relationships connections you know um, arenas in which a creative life makes sense. And so then that's the resistance, I guess, maybe then like the resistance for me has never been so far, knock on wood, internal, like I've never had writer's block. I've never had things that, you know, I've never been able to turn it off. Um, but, uh, but there's been lots of external resistance that, that I've faced. And that's been more of the negotiation for me as opposed to something, Internal.
1: It, do you roll your eyes at uh, the notion of a of writer's block, like when you hear other writers talk about maybe not feeling inspired or something like that?
0: Well, I well, it's a foreign thing to me. Like, it's I, I try not to be like an asshole about it, but I mean, I'm fully capable of that also. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but my my answer is all, like if people ask me like well don't you get writer's block like yeah no I I just lower my standards you know like there's I can write you know I just tell myself you know if I'm if I'm blocked on a scene just like even if I have to say it out loud okay out loud okay okay Tony uh, write the terrible version of the scene and then I'll, I give myself permission and I write a terrible version of the scene or okay write write a, the bad version of this poem. And then, you know, I start doing that. I give myself permission and then, you know, something decent comes out of it, you know, or if it doesn't, then at least it leads me to something that does become good. Like, it's just, um, it's like in the same way that I I don't have another thing that's like foreign to me is any kind of specialness in terms of the process or the, or a writing ritual. Like I I just, like I, I wrote my second book of poetry large part of it while working as a barista and as a traffic counter in Chapel Hill. Uh And, um, and so I would just develop methods by which like, while I was like making coffee, like I would, I would give myself prompts and I would internally be writing poems. And then between customers, I would write down a line on like a note card, put it back in my pocket and then, you know, make some more lattes and and do crap like that. And, And so I would set myself up or I would, I would put little notebooks in different places like in my car, at home and stuff. And so, you know, anytime I took a dump, I had to write a line, you know, (laughs) not all those lines made it into the book, but some did, you know, and uh, and so like so it's just uh, there's there's to me like there's ways in which to you know, like it's almost like a, a technical problem more to me than a. internal problem it's like how do you create conditions uh in which to to be able to you know overcome whatever things you have um to, to me like i almost try to have a philosophy and and create conditions in which writer's block or uh disruption of ritual doesn't even come into the picture and i think you know i did that in the world of poetry because you know in all you know i started working like fast food when i was like 15 had a bunch of different jobs. You know, I mentioned a pickle factory. Worked cleaning condos. Worked um, at a drugstore. Worked as a nightman at a hotel. And almost on almost all of those, once the faucet turned on to me, eighteen or nineteen, I would find ways to write while on the job, while still you know doing the job. And so that actually practice in the world of poetry worked well for me because like when i carried over to becoming a tv writer you always have to be working on scripts you you don't have time to have writer's block when you're working on tv because like you have to get pages out for the you know for the next day for filming or else the whole multi-million dollar thing sets down and uh, shuts down and so you don't it's just not possible so you have to be writing in the uh location scouting van or on set between setups or you know like all, all all these different things and so in a lot of ways in in the world of tv the tv almost sets up a um, the the production schedule when you're actually on a show almost makes it uh impossible to uh to have writer's block because it's just simply not much of an option unless you're like you know recognized genius like david milch or aaron sorkin and you know and the whole production is built around your personality i'm not i'm not one of those types i'm a I, i'm i'm a I see myself more as an artisan worker type than like the um, you know the maestro in the middle of the orchestra.
1: Do you think that part of the mindset that you're talking about, it stems from your background? Like you said, I didn't even have an imagination to be an artist because that wasn't you know around or or a familiar. Do you do you think that one informs the other?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think I have a very much just um, put on, you know, your little work uniform and go to work and, and do your job. And, and it's a vocation. I mean, it's a passion, too. And it's an obsession. But yeah, so yeah, I, th- I think, you know, and I also I was a terrible athlete uh, not terrible. I was a mediocre athlete growing up. I played lots of sports. And I think it's that that same kind of mindset. Like there's no... They're like, you're not going to improve your jump shot by through introspection or self-examination. You're going to do it by going out and doing it and missing a bunch of shots and screwing up and working on your form, get feedback, figure out what you need to do better. You know, don't be completely ignorant. You know, so I think I, I kind of my my personality, my character, my how I saw myself and how I saw like. I guess the term operational perspective, how I saw that I solved problems was just, just that is that I, I, I didn't think about them. I just jumped in and tried to fix things like, and, and that, that has its strengths and weaknesses, but it's been, it's, it, but it's kind of helped me in pretty good stead. And I, and I do think it came from, you know, my, my first, my first real sense of self, I think was, I, you know, my capacity for work at a young age, you know, like, you know, just e- even from like, you know, like I, I grew up, I had lots of tasks, tasks around the house, but also for my grandparents, you know, chopping wood, mowing their lawn. And then my great aunts, and my great grandma, uh they, they all lived on the same block in this like abandoned mining town. And so I was, I was, I was like the, the one available free, um free la- laborer for this collective this family collective <laughs> and then it and then you know and then we moved to a, uh, a trailer park and I, I was doing you know i was the, uh, the maintenance worker and doing garbage and and doing landscaping you know at like 14 15. Mm-hmm. and then i started working you know at uh burger king at 15 and a half when it was legal and uh, my capacity for just doing work and being a good worker was something I took pride in, and that gave me a sense of identity, and, and gave me positive feedback, and it, and it gave me a sense of purpose. And I think that that became my primary lens. But then it just happened to shift from gradually from you know kind of manual work to creative work. But I don't think there's too much of a um, uh, you know. It's more of a. It's not a huge qualitative change from one to the other in terms of just how I thought about the task before me.
1: Take me to, you know, we haven't gotten in the weeds at all, but you dive into television. There's Longmire, then Damnation, then The Terror. Were there points in between or before, or even now, what do you do in moments when it's just rejection and there's nothing active? Is the drive just still there at at the same levels? Yeah, I I guess I wonder sort of the, the, rain or or sun sort of approach
0: yeah yeah well i mean i think there's there's two ways i mean there's we can have a a conversation about like you know why it took me you know like i wanted to become a writer director when i was like 18 19 when you know pulp fiction came out and when you know um um spike lee's like clockers and, and stuff came out like that's what i wanted to do and i didn't actually pursue screenwriting until i was 35 you know so it's not you know, it's not like I, I recognize a passion and I jumped right in. It, it, I, I took a roundabout path, but now like, yeah, like, so, you know, my life is as a, my working life as a TV writer, screenwriter, aspiring writer, director is full of, yeah, failures and disappointments. I go up for jobs and I don't get them. You know, I, I spend a year, year and a half developing a TV show and pitch it around town. And I'm lucky like two out of the, 13 places that I pitched to wanted to buy it, you know, I am mean, that's like, you know, that's batting under 200, but it, that's actually a pretty good outcome and hopefully we're closing a deal to make, make that show. But there, you know, like I've, I've spent months developing a pitch for a feature project and, and, and going through different levels, it, you know, competing against one or two other writers. And then at the last stage, Um, saying, Nope, sorry, you know, we're going with this other person, and so then you know, months of work is just you just kind of got to toss out my uh, my reaction to this to these rejections. It's always well, like, I have a pretty healthy self esteem, so my first reaction is like, Oh, that was dumb of them, they don't know what they're missing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and uh, and then two, it's just to write my own thing, you know, just like, yeah, like I'm I'm Whenever I'm, you know, I've always got a couple projects that are just for me that I'm just working on for myself that I can just jump right into. So, I don't spend time ruminating over what could have been or whatever. I'm just like, okay, like I miss out. That sucks. Maybe I'll have uh, three glasses of wine tonight and, and um, marinate in my, in my bitterness for uh, 12 hours. And then when I get up tomorrow, I'll just work on whatever's exciting me. Uh, and I think, I don't know. I mean, like it could be self-deception, but that's, that's been kind of my thing. Like my, my wife, like, you know, like damnation was my first show to create. And when we got our first bad reviews, you know, the reviews were mixed, I think a little bit more positive than negative, but there was definitely some negative ones. And my wife was curious, uh, when the first one came out, how I was going to react. And I read it and she kind of looked at me. I'm like, Oh, they're wrong. They, they got you know they are totally wrong on that review they they, they just didn't they just didn't get it. and she's like oh yeah yeah that's that sounds like the guy i married you're going to be fine mm-hmm. uh, and so like that's you know whether whether that's self deception or not just believing you know just trusting my inner voice i mean that's that's it's not like i have any kind of extra grit or anything like there's a little bit of my worker self but there's this whole interim in which i was a poet like you know poets culturally are thought of as sensitive flighty people and and they probably are to a degree but you've also got to be resilient as hell because there's no writing life that has less external validation than poetry like nobody cares about poetry <laughs> in the culture and like a, a best selling poetry book that's like it's like selling like 3 or 4000 copies like it's it's not like you can get rich off of it you're not going to get famous off of it most people you know think it's an art form that should have died 150 years ago. But if you're compelled by it and and you get in the actual creativity itself and the process itself and being invested in an artistic tradition is where you find sustenance. Uh, like that's, that takes a certain amount of um, I don't know, character or inner resistance. And maybe I didn't have enough to stay with poetry for my whole life, but you know, kind of developing my creative artistic self in the world of poetry, which is so st- kind of marginalized and you so have to do it yourself and you so have to find your own reasons for sticking with it because the world doesn't offer you very many. Like that's also kind of, you know, I, I think I've been fortunate. Like I I did want to be like the next Orson Welles or Paul Thomas Anderson and, and make some great movie at 25 instead of, you know, waiting until I was 35 to actually try to write a script for the first time. But I think in a lot of ways I've been lucky that my kind of TV screenwriting career got you know a relatively later start because that that interim of just being a worker and then being a poet and then being academic i think forced me to build up some inner resources where now like like i'm just playing with house money now like you know like i you know my biggest failure in the tv or screenwriting world is uh, more appealing to me on many levels than any bigger successes i had as a fast food worker or as a poet or as an academic. And so like, if that, if that's the, uh, you know, that that's the dues I have to pay, or if that's the cost of admission to play this game, like I'll, I'll take these failures like every year, you know? And so like, there's, there's a little bit of of that, like, I'm still kind of stunned that I kind of parachuted into this world. And, you know, I I think I'm lucky that I, I don't know how, I don't think I would have had the kind of psychological or emotional resilience to pursue this line of work in my 20s. I think I was much too erratic. I was too self-destructive and I was too impractical. And so I think coming to it a little late has kind of helped me overcome some of my own weaknesses that would have otherwise torpedoed the ship right away in my Mm -hmm. 20s.
1: Is there an identifiable creative struggle for you right now? Because it sounds like you say, yep, I have no problem with internal drive. Nope, I've got thick skin. Nope, I've got plenty of belief. No fear is really not a thing. So I guess I wonder, like, it, like is there kind of something there, or do you say I just feel like I'm really healthy and in stride?
0: Well, I mean, like to say that I'm really healthy and strides you know, would sound kind of delusional. But <laughs> I'm not but, trying to set you up to sound like all. Um, no, no, but but I mean, it's a good it's a good thing because I, mean, I, I, I don't want to be falsely modest about it stuff like there so like so let's say um yeah you know, i've wanted to since i was a teenager be a writer director making films i have not yet made a film so i mean i can't go around strutting around and say like look at me you know total uh, artistic fulfillment when i haven't done the main thing i want to do uh so I'm, you know i'm 45 years old now and uh but i am in the process of you know um, um, hopefully, if the financing turns out, I, I'll be able to actually make a film that I wrote next year. I've got the cast together, I've got my producer. Uh, I'm, you know, doing doing lots of prep. So, you know, if things turn out, which I'm not in total control of, perhaps next year I actually get to make a film. It took, you know, I think my for me, there's been an impulse towards creativity from the get-go. Uh, my preferred, if I had to pick one way of expressing that or one form, it would be as a writer-director in films. I have not yet done that. But when I was in my teens and 20s, I played in some slap, sloppy bands and I and I fell into, I, I pursued poetry. And then, and then I went and I got a PhD in English and wrote a book about Johnny Cash. And then I went and did wrote for TV for 10 years. Um, And so, and it took me maybe about seven years into my TV writing career for me to even say out loud that my real, that I wanted to direct and that I wanted to write and direct films. And so, yeah, so, but I think part of it, part of it is maybe I didn't feel entitled to it. It's not so much that I think I was afraid of it. I thought I could do it. I didn't feel like I was in a position where, where I stood that was a a viable realistic pragmatic step forward to go from where you know like to go from being a poet and a poetry professor to writing to directing a film it's just too big of a leap and and uh and i and i don't think i would have even made the jump into trying to write for tv if a friend of mine who i if i hadn't seen him just do it because his novel got optioned and he was a professor in indiana and he wrote some scripts. That's Nick. Nick, Yeah. Right? Yeah, Nick Pizzolatto, who went on to do True Detective. And so we, we did our MFA program together. And so I saw, you know, Nick, Nick comes from a pretty uh, working class background in Louisiana. And we did our MFA together at University of Jobs Poetry. He was fiction. We were drinking buddies. We hung out. We were both in North Carolina at the same time. And we would talk about, you know, how, you know, how great TV is and how great The Sopranos and Deadwood and The Wire. And that's actually where you know, a, a modern Faulkner would, you know, even though Faulkner did go to Hollywood, but like actually a modern Faulkner could kind of have some creative control in in TV and the quality was so good. And then, you know, he wrote a novel. It got optioned and he's like, well, you know, I'd like to write the script for this. And the agent said, well, you have to have some sample scripts. So he went off, wrote like six scripts in a month. One of them was a true detective pilot and he sent them to the agents and they were like, you know, holy shit, this guy is brilliant. And, uh, and then he, so he jumped in from being, a creative writing professor in a small school in indiana and then like a couple months later he's a staff writer on the killing on amc all based on just the quality of his work he didn't have to know somebody's dad he didn't have to network or anything like that he just he wrote a great script was lucky to put it in the right hands and then all of a sudden he's he's got this tv writing career and you know so i was hanging out with him having drinks doing our usual thing and he's like you know if you want to write some scripts, I can hand them to the agents. Tell me you're a good guy, and and see if anything happens for you. And so, okay, you know, this is when I was finishing up my PhD. I'd just gotten hired as a uh, creative writing professor, but I hadn't started yet. So I, I took a couple months, wrote a couple of scripts. He passed them along to his agents. They really, really liked my scripts. This is when I was 35, and they flew me out to L.A. I was living in Seattle at the time. Flew out to L.A. for like a week and a half of meetings, and uh, got a job writing for Longmire and and sold like three pilots to three different studios and so I quit my professor job and then all of a sudden I was a I was a tv writer like I didn't know that that was even possible until I saw Nick do it so you could say there was inner resistance but I don't know I didn't I didn't even know enough for there to be inner resistance I just thought like oh like yeah of course I'm not gonna do a tv writer just like I'm not gonna be an astronaut like it's just it would, it would just be self delusion to think that that's a path for somebody like me kind of in the same way like you know so i i, I kind of worked my way up in tv you know started off as a freelancer at longmire and became a staff writer then a producer then i created and sold my own show and i was a showrunner which is you know it's not exactly directing but it's it's a lot of the work of the director because you're doing a lot of prep you're overseeing post-production and editing and you're getting asking for reshoots and you're you're doing a you're not in the director's chair on set but you're spending a lot of time on set you're it's about as close to being an auteurish director as you can be without being an autourish director and so like after five years on lawnmire and then one year we only got one year on Damnation but one year of running that show and then and then being a uh uh, a, a higher level level writer producer on the um, terror infamy, the second season of the terror, and then also at the, this point i'd broken in um, writing uh, features for different uh, production companies or studios and stuff and and so I, I kind of knew the feature form. It was after the combination of these experiences that it seemed like oh, a logical next step is to write and direct my own project because I've now kind of proven to myself and to other some others in the industry that I can write a strong feature. I've gone through prep, production, and post. I know I know those pretty well. You know, those are all skills that would carry over to directing. And so, then now, finally, I'm at a point where saying it out loud seems like you know it won't seem delusional to myself or to others to say my next ambition is to write and direct my own film. And that's so that's where I am now. So like whatever i'm working on kind of branches into what i do next i'm a little bit restless you know like i've done lots of creative things but i think it's all been kind of heading in this direction like i, I will you know if, if i go through my whole artistic life and i never get to write and direct a film i'll be disappointed but i've been pretty happy with what i've done so so far also but yeah but yeah that that's kind of how i've seen it like I've i've always in a daily practice, I'm always being creative and writing or making things. I to me, like it's not much different than when I was in my 20s and I was writing poems and I was editing an online magazine and writing reviews and and, and doing all these type of things. It was a, it was all encompassing daily practice. Now that's just kind of shifted over closer to where my kind of teenage dreams were, and uh, and I'm just kind of kind of trusting that process and then if it if i hit walls where i just i can't support my family or i can't find traction then i wouldn't be surprised you know like hollywood careers don't last forever i've already been doing it 10 years which is a pretty long you know like it's like you know you know professional athletes have a sh- short window i mean unless you're like you know aaron sorkin or david fincher or something like your work life career can be kind of constricted cuz it's such a youth focused industry when this inevitably dries up hopefully later than sooner you know i'm sure i'll just carry over the same practice to probably you know writing fiction or writing plays or writing or doing podcasts or or whatever compels me you know so that's just as long as i'm constantly in a spot where i I have the material conditions and the time and the energy and the health to to be creative i think i'm pretty happy i mean this is definitely the happiest i've been as a creative person (laughs)
1: Listening to the Resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for more information and further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Engineering, production, and additional music by Jay Kirkpatrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening.